for some weeks now and for some weeks ahead, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be setting aside Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday and then returning to the Gospel of John, but our, our uh, moment in the Gospel of John is this last night of Jesus' earthly ministry, this Thursday night before the cross. It is, a, well, it is the longest single block of Jesus' teaching. Now, I know there's some moments of dialogue. We've got a, a question from Judas, not Iscariot, in the paragraphs we're looking at this morning. But as a, as a block of verbal teaching from Jesus in one place, one setting, it's the largest such block in any of the four Gospels. In a lot of ways, it's the teaching heart of the Gospel of John. It's a strategically important series of lessons and ideas. Jesus is driving home to his disciples and they're starting to get it. These, these twin truths. First, that, that though they have become accustomed over the course now of years of, of spending every day with Jesus, of, of traveling with him, of asking him their their questions and getting the answers straight from him and of, of eating meals with him and doing ministry alongside him. After years of that, he really is about to leave. And they're starting to realize that and at the same time, these, these 11 will be moving forward. Him having departed, they will be moving forward to, to establish the foundation of the, of the church defined in its largest possible sense. The, the church as a movement of God's people, which, which church in the largest sense we're still a part of here in April of 2022. So you've got this monumental task they're going to undertake and this monumental leader who's going to be leaving them as they undertake it. It's an unenviable place. And their insecurity over the task is aggravated by their insecurity over Jesus' soon departure. And there's a lot he wants to tell them this last night. Central truth of the passage we'll be looking at this morning is they will be moving forward, but they will not be moving forward alone. My title this morning, Jesus Promises the Helper. My text John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. Jesus is speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. 
Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Well, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And that last is a, just a geographical reference. At that point, they, they stood up from that room and began to walk across the moonlit city of Jerusalem. At times in the teaching of Jesus, he, he organizes his discourse uh, in, in a way that, that literally just tracking along verse by verse is, is, a, is, is the, the best way to deal with the passage. Pastor, Pastor Carey last week did a terrific job dealing with the passage that, that Jesus taught in John 14 up to this point. But, but some, sometimes, and this is not to substitute my methodology for that of Jesus, how would I dare do that? But sometimes Jesus is, is teaching in a form that's a bit like a tapestry. It's a, it's a very Eastern, very Jewish way of teaching where he weaves together and, and restates and refrains certain truths and builds this marvelous mosaic or tapestry of truth as he does in this passage. Well, in, in order to, to extract principle from it, I'm going to try to trace the threads in his tapestry, though that will require that I bounce around a bit in the passage, more so than I would perhaps typically do. But I have prayed, and I do pray that I will be faithful to the things he would have us learn from this text. Row number one on your outline are, are characteristics of a Christ follower. Now, these are not all that's true about a follower of Christ, but there's, there's a couple of, of key things he wants to say about those who follow him in this passage. The first, letter A on your outline, Jesus, Jesus says that because they love him, followers of Christ obey. That is to say, and this is probably the most theologically profound statement I'll make this morning, so you might want to brace yourself for it. The followers of Christ 
follow Christ. I know, I know, you expected more of me and I don't blame you. But the followers of Christ follow Christ. It is our central, most defining characteristic. Three times in this passage, Jesus is going to say that if you love me, you'll obey me. He says it in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now I want you to notice something very, very, very important about all three of those statements, and that is this. They are description, they are not direction. They're characteristic, they are not commandment. Surely other places in the word of God we are reminded that we ought to obey Jesus. But here Jesus is not, is not saying, if you love me, you better obey me. Instead, he is assuring and promising. If you love me, you know what you're gonna do? You know what's gonna be possible for you that is impossible for the world? You wanna know what's gonna be within your grasp that was never within your grasp before? If you love me, you'll obey me. Wonder of wonders. Oh, that, that, that one, that me, conceived in sin, born into a world at war with God, a willing participant on the wrong side of that war by both my innate nature and my will by my proclivities, by my love for my sin, arrayed in every possible way as an opponent of the living God. His love has overwhelmed my sinful nature. His grace has made me a new creature. And I now find in myself, as do you if you are a Christian, the capacity and desire to live in obedience to him. Perfectly? Not a chance. One day, when I meet him, and the last vestiges of my sinful flesh are swept away, till then, bumping along, bloodying my nose from time to time on the Capacity for stupid I still carry. The capacity for sinful I still haul about in my flesh. But obedient, receptive, submissive. Things that can only be explained by the supernatural presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Which leads me to letter B. Followers of Christ are possessed, literally inhabited by God the Holy Spirit. By the way, just as a footnote, that's why demon possession can never be an issue for a Christian. God the Holy Spirit has made his home in your heart and he will not share that space with a lesser spirit. Demons can bug you, but they cannot possess you. Not if you belong to Jesus. Because you are possessed by the omnipotent living God. 
in the person of God, the Holy Spirit. He dwells with you and will be in you, says the end of verse 17. Well, let's talk a little bit more about him. Roman numeral two, a companion for the Christ follower. This, this word that the ESV translates helper is a very, very difficult word to get the fullness of in, in a single word translation. Some translations use the word advocate. That's a great translation. Some translations use the word counselor. That's a wonderful translation. He is all of that. The word literally is a compound word from the, the preposition to be alongside, para, and the, and the verb to be called. So most literally, it would be the called alongside one. But even that very literal translation doesn't capture all the denotations and connotations. It was used in, in ancient Greek contemporaneous language. It was used to describe a defense attorney. It was used to describe a counselor. It was used to describe one who literally assists. It is all of that. But it is best thought of and best understood as a word describing the presence of the living God in the heart of the believer in the person of God the Spirit. Letter A, he inhabits believers and is completely unknown to unbelievers apart from the conviction of sin. As we move forward through this night of teaching by Jesus, Jesus is going to spend some moments on the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the lost world. But apart from that convicting ministry, he says in verse 17, he is whom the world cannot receive. God the Holy Spirit inhabits believers he is completely unknown and not well understood by the unbelieving world. Letter B, though I used myself the adverb it a few moments ago, I was describing, I mean, pardon me, the adjective, the pronoun, it. I was describing the word, parakaleo, not the person, God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is not an it. God the Holy Spirit is a he. He is the living God. I, um, Perhaps the least surprising thing I'll say today, I am not charismatic, either personally or in my theology. But I have a lot of friends who are. We see that as a difference. We don't necessarily hold that as a conflict. But one of the turns of phrase that sometimes bothers me from some of my charismatic friends is they, they will speak of God, the Holy Spirit, and they'll use the word it. As in, yeah, I remember when I got it. Woo! I got the Holy Spirit when I was X and so years old or whatever. And I, uh, I want to encourage them and you. God the Holy Spirit is not it. God the Holy Spirit is he. He's not a, a force like Star Wars that enables you to do supernatural stuff by, by your grabbing hold of some inanimate power. He is not an it. He is not a force. And I want to encourage you with something else. He's not an experience. He is not your emotional state. 
And I just want to encourage you in that regard. Sometimes one will hear someone say, Woo, God, the Holy Spirit was really present when we were gathered in church this morning. Yes, he was. He always is. Perhaps what you mean to say is, Whoa, worship this morning really spun my emotions around about 1,440 degrees. Wow, was I emotionally overwhelmed in worship this morning. And by the way, you ought be. We are, we are creatures created with a large emotional component. And if from time to time it doesn't overwhelm you emotionally to contemplate all of who he is and all of what he has done, and specifically all of what he has done for you, if that's not a place where you can be emotionally overwhelmed, what are you, a brick? There's nothing wrong with saying I was overwhelmed in worship this morning, just be careful that you don't accidentally either believe or give the impression that your emotional experience is God the Holy Spirit. He is a person quite distinct from you. He is within you, but your emotional state is not the equivalent of his presence. In the life of the believer, he is present constantly. He lives here. Another thing that's true about this companion, better see, he brings the presence of the triune God into real connected relationship with the believer. Jesus says of the coming of the Spirit in verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. It is God the Spirit, verse 23, first part of the verse. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love to him. Actually, back part of the verse. We will come to him and make our home with him in overly simple terms. And the, the Trinity is one of those concepts that defies illustration. You can't ever say, well, the Trinity is like, whatever you're gonna finish that sentence with is inadequate. The Trinity is, is probably the central, irreducible reality of this universe. And there is nothing that is like it. The Trinity is quite like the Trinity. That one God expresses and gains glory for himself in the person of God the Father, the person of God the Son, the person of God the Holy Spirit. In simple terms, prone to error, but perhaps somewhat helpful. God the Father is the architect of all that is. God the Son, the achiever of our salvation, for it is God the Son who died on the cross for the sins of all who will ever repent and believe and be saved. And then it is God the Spirit who applies 
those truths by bringing them home and dwelling with them in our hearts. Because he's there, there's some abilities and capacities that are present in us that that weren't there before. Roman numeral three, capacities of a Christ follower. First and most astonishing to truly know God. We can truly know God. That is very, very different than knowing about God. Know all about someone and not know them. I can't endorse everything he's ever said. I can't endorse everything he's ever done. But I think Martin Short, the Canadian comedian, is funny. I have laughed often at stuff from Martin Short. Well, two or three years ago, Martin Short wrote an autobiography. It's a good read. I read it. And I was moved by how honest he was in telling his life story, including some very painful and ugly parts of it. And at the end of that book, I felt like I knew quite a lot about Martin Short because he'd chosen to tell me quite a lot. So I wrote him a letter. And I thanked him for his honesty and I thanked him for giving me a few hours of fun reading and I told him that I wished he'd come to faith in Christ because I hate to see a guy that could be so funny and who has learned so much from so much pain. I hate to see all of that go to hell forever. Never heard back. I don't know Martin Short. I read a book he wrote. I know a lot about him. I don't know him. We have this agreement. I won't write him any more letters and he won't hit me with a cease and desist order. It's an unspoken agreement, but I'm sure it's there. (laughs) You know who knows way more about God than you do? Satan. The devil knows way more about God than you will ever know. He's way older than you are. He pays more attention to spiritual dynamics than you do. He's extraordinarily observant. He's a better theologian than any living person, but he doesn't know God. Not in intimacy, not in relationship. God, the Holy Spirit, has brought home to the heart of every believer that we know God. Again, the back part of verse 17. The world doesn't see him or know him. You know him. Because we know him and because he dwells within us in the person of the Holy Spirit, letter B, we can understand the word of God. Verse 26 The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He's speaking there of of teaching us what he wants us to know for life and godliness, what, what he wants us to know from his word. Now, one way you can abuse and misunderstand that verse is to say, well, I don't then have to be a diligent student of God's word because all I have to do is go over here and, and, and wait for, for God the Holy Spirit to just beam into me everything he wants me to know. But that ignores the rest of the counsel of the word of God. It ignores what the Bible says about itself over and over again. The word of God will be the vocabulary of the Spirit of God in the heart of the child of God. 
God the Holy Spirit is your teacher. The Bible is his curriculum. This is where he teaches you. You want to hear the voice of God? Read your Bible. You want to hear an audible voice from God? Read your Bible out loud. Man, I wish that was original with me. That has gotten a really good laugh in multiple services this morning, and I didn't come up with it. And there I go with that 10th commandment again, coveting somebody else's wonderful sense of humor. And by the way, teaching clarity because the point is true. But if you want to read God's word with understanding, follow Christ. Bible study is still study. God the Holy Spirit, the old theological word is God the Holy Spirit illuminates, lights up God's word and brings it home, which leads me to letter C, the ability to recall and apply the word of God in ways that are circumstantially appropriate. The rest of verse 26 says, he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The ability to, to recall and apply. It's not just memorization, though memorization matters, and familiarity with God's word is critically important. Uh, so we have to do the work of being a student of God's word. I, uh, I'm fairly ruthless in my requirement when I, when I give my 12th grade students scripture to memorize. I make them get it right. It's fun to look around the room and see some former and present students of mine nodding. That gives me warm fuzzies. I don't give them fill in the blanks. I give them blank space on a sheet of paper and I say, write the following verse and I tell them what to write. And from time to time, they have said to me, Pastor Howard, that's a lot of words. I can't memorize that many words. And I smile and I say, the problem is you and I both know you've got every lyric of every top 10 song for the last five years stored in your head. It's not that you can't memorize, it's that you've not done this sort of memory enough to get your brain in shape for it. But beyond memorization of scripture, it's grasping scripture, knowing the strategic story, knowing where to find things. My, uh, my last final exam from my, my New Testament, my, my New Testament survey professor in seminary was named Dr. Philip Allison. My son Philip is named after Dr. Phil Allison. His final exam at the end of a year of New Testament survey, he told us this was coming. It was all blank paper. He handed it out and he said, here's what you're going to do on these blank pages. You're gonna write the word Matthew and then you're gonna number one to 28 and you're gonna write beside the numbers one through 28 the major theme of every chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Then you're going to write the word Mark. You're going to number one through 16, et cetera. The name of the book, number down the number of chapters in the book and right beside each number the major theme of that chapter. Because while others will help you memorize scripture, I'm going to help you memorize the index. It was nuts. But it was extraordinarily helpful as a framework 
So when God the Holy Spirit wants to bring something to mind that I'm frantically going, I think I remember where that is. See, God the Holy Spirit wants you to not just have memorized scripture, he wants you to have understood it. To be able to grasp it, to apply it, to bring it home into your moment. And ultimately, that is a supernatural capacity that is present only in the believer. And then letter D, to live in peace. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. It's, it's not like the world's peace, not as the world gives you. See, the world's peace requires that everything be circumstantially okay. The problem with that is we've never had a moment, you and I, when everything is circumstantially okay. This peace of God functions in three different ways. First and foremost, it is peace with God. That, that sinful people like you and I can be reconciled to a peaceful relationship with the living God by the forgiveness of sin which he purchased for us on the cross, which gift we accept by turning from our sin and casting ourselves by faith before him as Lord, trusting that the, the work on the cross, the proof provided at the empty tomb, the glorious promise of his one day return, that all of those things are true and trustworthy. We turn from our sin and follow him as Lord. And in that, and only in that relationship, we find peace with God. There's no other means to peace with God. Not only peace with God, but peace with others. You and I live in a fallen world, and even after we're saved, here we are, and the world is still fallen, and we're still pretty flawed. <sighs> Which means from time to time, you and I are gonna disagree about stuff. I was reminded once again this week, as I am many weeks, that there are people in the world that don't agree with every position I've ever taken. I was aghast. <laughs> it's a consequence of what I do that there are probably more hours of me talking available on the internet than some of you have. Maybe you've got more than I do, but I've got my fair share. I didn't set out for that to be true, but it's a consequence of pastoring a church with a wonderful media department in the year 2022. I say all that to say, quite often I don't agree with me. Quite often someone will say to me, well, no, this is what you said, and I will say, I couldn't possibly have said that. It's wrong, and they'll send me a link with the time. Uh, check this out. It's six minutes, 12 seconds. You did say it. And I'll go, well, I joined the legions of people that disagree with me then because I don't think I said that right. But you know what? You and I can disagree and live in peace. You and I can, can have a marvelous, peaceful relationship even if we don't agree on everything. That's supernatural. You know that, right? That peace is coming from Jesus. I can't for the life of me understand why some people prefer Pepsi products. It's a grave defect. And yet I seem to be able to get along with several such people. I don't get them. <laughs> As I live out my Coke Zero addiction. All right. But I digress. 
Not only peace with God and others, but peace with circumstances. Here's the deal. You've got a list of circumstantial things up close to your life and then radiating out from your life, situations and things that you don't like, that aren't right. From things that are right up into and part of your life to things that are current events. There's probably a a long list of stuff there that you're not happy about, and I don't blame you, me too. But there's also a list of things that are astonishingly, unfathomably, amazingly right. At the end of this day, when I put my head on my pillow, I will have followed Jesus. Tomorrow, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to follow Jesus. What if you stub your toe? I'll get up and follow Jesus. What if you bloody your nose? I'll get up and follow Jesus. You know what I'm going to do the day after that? I'm going to follow Jesus. And one of these days, in the course of my following Jesus, I will either go to him or he will come for me. I don't know which. And after that happens, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to dwell with Jesus. And there is no set of circumstances that can arise in the meantime that can legitimately interfere with the peace that comes from knowing I am his and am bound to follow him until I follow him home. And then after that, it only gets better. That's not the sort of peace the world gives. It can't. Conclude Roman number four, Roman number four, with a caution. Three times, and I've shown you in verse 15, 21, and 23, three times he makes this statement, this description, this characteristic. My followers, because they love me, they obey the things that I've said. Well, he, he states it as a, as a warning in the negative in verse 24. Whoever does not love me, does not keep my words. It is a caution regarding false belief. That warning against false belief is one of the the great recurring themes of the New Testament. It's all over the place. Here, Jesus is speaking. John the Apostle, years later, is recalling under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And along and along, he writes 1 John, and he He reiterates basically the same thing that he heard the Lord say that Thursday night when he writes 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. You know, some scripture is hard to get because it's so complex. This is difficult because it's so simple. If you say you know Jesus, but you don't live in characteristic obedience, you're lying. He writes on, the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him is truly the love of God. In him, the love of God truly is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If, if your 
core understanding of the Christian life is a set of disciplines, morals, ethics, rules to live by that you must tack on to your life and give it your best shot. You've missed something important. You are the possessor of a bright, shiny new car and you are pushing it down the street as though it had no engine. If you are attempting to gut out the work of being a Christian. Because the Christian life in justification and in sanctification is not about effort, it's about transformation. We are new creatures. It's not that we ought to be new creatures, we are new creatures, those of us who are in Christ. Hey, before I go, I wanna plug a resource. I've, I've mentioned, and I know I'm over time, I've mentioned at the bottom there of your notes, uh, my friend and mentor, Steve Brown, wrote a book on God the Holy Spirit. It's not the most techno technical, theological treatment of God the Holy Spirit anybody ever read or anybody ever wrote. It's only a couple hundred pages, paperback. But it's the best work on God the Holy Spirit I've ever read. And I don't say that just because the author is a friend and mentor. It's a really good book. And I just want to recommend it to you. It's probably, as I tend to recommend his books that are out of print, um, he asked me one time, why don't you recommend something that I'm still selling? And in that moment I said, well, if you'd write today good stuff like you used to write, I would. But he calls me a friend anyway, and I'm sure you can find the book somewhere. I recommend it to you. If your Christian experience is all effort, take a, take a good look and see if in fact you're not trying to do something in your works that you ought to put down and walk away from and instead rather just cast yourself by faith at the feet of Jesus and let him change you. Find out that car you've been pushing does in fact have an engine and it will purr. You can live for Jesus but you can't live for Jesus apart from the presence of the promised helper.